You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I think it's amazing how lucky we are to be in our profession and have the movies uh, to remember people with. I think the films of Hal Ashby have had an enormous effect on most of the great filmmakers that we admire. The winner is Hal Ashby. Ten or eleven features, seven in the 70s, that are just an astonishing string of masterpieces. I want to thank Hal Ashby for your courage. Hal Ashby was obsessed with film. He'd smoke some pot and he would work all night. It's still a little astonishing to me why he hasn't had his due. Well, that's all we have as filmmakers are our instincts. There's nothing else. In other words, what I feel about something, it's the only thing I know. The film will tell you what to do. If you think about any of Hal Ashby's films, you're going to find discussion of class, you're going to find discussion of race. He was so sensitive of what's right and what's wrong. He fought for us. But if you fight nose to nose with the head of the studio, you're going to lose. This will most certainly not be a memo of any sort. It will be closer to the ramblings of a very, very angry young punk. A lot of his wit, I think, came from pain. The way I think maybe humor does come from facing adversity. Hal created such an inclusive environment. It almost felt like, you know, you were all impulses in the same brain. He wanted people clearly to love one another when society's trying to keep them apart. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Today I'm talking to two folks behind the new movie, Hal. First up, I'm talking to... The writer of Being Hell Ashby, our old friend Nick Dawson, who was recently on the last movie episode. And after that, we will hear from Amy Scott, who is the director of Hal, the new documentary about Hal Ashby that is playing in theaters right now. What was the first Hal Ashby film that you remember seeing? Probably Being There, which I guess is pretty standard. The interesting thing for me is that I approached writing a book about Ashby more from a biographer's perspective than it was from a fan of his work i i knew his work but i hadn't seen all of it by by no means had i seen all of his films when i decided to to write the book it was more uh, sort of as a response to reading uh, easy riders raging bulls and getting a sense of some of his life story and being really intrigued by it rather than I, don't know, I, I think the assumption has always been that i, I sort of came out as a fan I, I think maybe you know just partly because his films are phenomenal and super uh, underappreciated and, and i think you know i think over the past decade or so i think things have shifted a little bit which has been really great to see and and uh, amy's film has been a, a huge part of that as well 
Well, I'm curious. There's one thing of, you know, yeah, I find him interesting and I read Easy Riders and Raging Bulls and this guy seems, you know, kind of cool and I'd like to know more versus writing a 400 and some page biography. So what's that decision process? You know, I wrote it in my early 20s. It came out when I was like 28, 29. Uh, but, but, you know, like it was th- one of those glorious things about being young was that I was naive and I, I, um, I sort of had it in my mind that, that I wanted to read a book about him. And when there wasn't one, I, um, I was like, well, maybe I'll write one. And I was doing a biography course uh, at university and my biography professor sort of allowed me to write a, a biographical sketch of Ashby. And, and when, when I graduated, I was like, I'm going to turn this into a book. And she was like, okay, you go do that then. And she kind of called my bluff on it. And just because, you know, I was already sort of working as a, as a freelance journalist and, and I could make a little money and, and, I had low overheads at the time, not being married with a kid and not living somewhere, you know, uh, affordable rather than New York City as I do now. You know, I, I basically was in this incredible position of being able to kind of take the small bit of money that I had and, and like go to L.A. for a period of time and try to, sort of, you know, it was like a, completely a Hail Mary. And, and I, it was really poorly thought through, but it kind of panned out. I mean, I wrote a book on spec. I didn't like I didn't get a deal or anything like that, but. The fact that there was this great desire out there for his story to be told properly and, and for Ashby to be celebrated like meant that people were incredibly receptive. The people in his movies, the people, his collaborators, his, his stars were just incredibly generous with their time to this person who essentially had no track record. And they were just like, you know, nobody's done this before. So, like, if you're the person, then I guess you're the person. And, and they spoke to me. It was it was amazing. Yeah, I was going to ask, I mean, you're 20-some years old, this kid coming out there and just no problem getting these doors to open for you? Well, I wouldn't quite put it like that. I mean, I, I, I remember numerous attempts of, like, trying to contact agents and, and just either having, like, get, getting no response or, or people being kind of uh, very sort of dismissive. But, you know, when I actually started talking to people and then, you know, they, they would connect me to other people and his people like Bob Jones, who who edited films for him and, and also wrote, you know, won an Oscar for co-writing uh, Coming Home and, and wrote the shooting script uh, for being there, even though he's not credited. You know, people like Bob would, would were just really generous and would connect me to other people. And I, I remember I had had lunch with David Carradine once and like David Carradine gave me like a bunch of numbers. Uh, you know, similarly, you know, we talk about easy rise of raging bulls, Peter Biskins. I connected with relatively early on. He gave me like a bunch of numbers that he had from when he was writing easy rise of raging bulls. And some of those were out of date, but, but you know, there was, you know, I, I sort of tapped into very quickly this community of people who loved Ashby and were, responsive to what i was doing and and you know there was one time when i know i i somehow got hold of maybe this was from peter but i i got warren Beatty's number and i just remember for like a year and a half i would like persistently would call his office uh or email until this one time was like sure warren's around he can speak to you and then it was like okay it was that was a uh you know it was like just because I kept on trying that people saw that I was serious, even though I was just a kid. 
the relationship between Ashby and Norman Jewison seems like a real crucial piece of the puzzle for Ashby's life. Completely. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think it's one of those relationships that one needs to have in, in this kind of business in order to, to really move forward, to have somebody who uh, recognizes your worth as a collaborator and, and, and champions you as a, as somebody who, who d- deserves to rise through the rank, you know, and they had a really special friendship and, I think it, it, it takes somebody like that to to validate. I think it, it took Jewison to, to validate his his ambition to be a director for him to really make that uh, step up and, and, and get there. Because, you know, I think there are these these people who have ambitions like that and, and who are, you know, Ashby was an incredibly gifted editor and he could have easily just remained that if he hadn't had somebody who, who said, like, what is it you really want to do? You know, and how can I help make that happen? And Jewison, you know, took took him and, and he made him like an associate producer on, on the Thomas Crown Affair and Gailey Gailey and which put him on set and allowed him to see how things worked and then kind of did a little bit of a bait and switch with with the landlord, which was a project that Jewison was originally slated to to direct himself and then just said, like, I, I can't do this, but you know, I, I know the person who should and then produced that film. And so he re- really just created a path for him. Um, that gave him the confidence and the opportunities to to become a director, and Ashby took took those opportunities with both hands and and really got the best out of them. I, I'm a huge fan of the Landlord. I've, I've seen the movie many many times, and I, I think it, you know I, I stand by my my assertion that it's one of like the the most sort of the, the strongest and like most distinctive debut features from from that period. You mentioned that he was an editor for a lot of years and really could have made that his his bread and butter uh, had he not gone into directing. And I'm curious, you mentioned Bob Jones. What was it like to be an editor for Hal Ashby? Bob was his own, like as an editor, was a, was a different, I mean, you know, Ash, Ashby had worked uh, with other people previously as editors. Jones cut uh, the last detail. Uh, he took over from somebody else. Um, on that film where which hadn't been going that well in posts and and the the quality that that bob has as an editor was he was just he was really fast but also just brilliant and i i think that he was the first person that that ashby truly trusted as an editor so that he could kind of step back but because if you look at both the landlord and uh, how the mod Th- those are two films that that ashby was very very involved in as a sort of director editor he's not credited on either film you know but they're both very consciously edited films there there's there's a lot of cuts there the, the editing you might say is, is stylized whereas in the last detail it's it doesn't sort of um telegraph itself it's not so consciously edited and, and i i think it was something where he could relax a little bit and the film feels more relaxed. Bob Jones uh, cut the film kind of intuitively, whereas there's just a ton of very conscious thought that is in, in the landlord and, and Harold and Lord in, in terms of the way that scenes are intercut where they go from one to another. There's, there's jokes, there's interplay between this um, scenes and sequences in the last detail. It's just, it just sort of flows a lot more and, and feels like, and more of a natural narrative progression. And, and that was the start of Ashby being able to sort of be a less 
physical presence in in the in the editing room he would go off and do other things and and in a way his some of the difficulties that he had in in the 80s was when uh jones was had had become a writer and and he had editors he could depend on less in the editing room and and he he had to become more involved in that and and you know he was trying to at that time he was trying to give sorry he was trying to give young editors a, a break and and was sort of handing over the reins to people who had a lot of potential but not necessarily a lot of experience and and i think his film suffered as a result that he would try and always take things on himself but he was dealing with a lot of projects and and you know sometimes the material was was just not that great to start with you know that you have a film like um looking to get out which i i'm a i'm a big champion of the original release version of that film is uh was kind of compromised it was it had 15 minutes chopped out of it uh against ashby's wishes but the the the, the ashby cut of that which was released on dvd uh like nine years ago i think that really is a, is a special film but his films you know when when people weren't cutting them appropriately inevitably did suffer a great a great deal I was always so curious about Eight Million Ways to Die. Did that ever get a release where it was more close to his vision? It didn't, unfortunately, for, for the reason that that it was taken away from him before he he cut a frame of it. He had a very clear sense of what he was going to do, uh, but as soon as production had ended on that that film, uh, he was he was relieved of his duties, as they say, and and so you know it, it's. I think it's a film where you see flashes here and there of his work, but it's it, it it's so integral um, to to an Ashby film that that he is in some way a, a presence in the editing room that that his intentions are are manifest on screen. Whereas, you know, the the music was different; it was cut by somebody else, almost like against the grain of what he would have done. Um, so I, I watched that film and it's kind of a painful thing for me because it is so clearly not uh, not his film in the way that one would want it to be. I'm curious about writing about his early life. How was that approaching? You know, because there's one thing to talk to Norman Jewison, to talk to Rudy Wurlitzer and some of these guys, but what was it like to find out more about him growing up? It was a lot of work, I guess, uh, but it. It was completely, uh, you know, it was like a thrill for me to do that, to, to, you know, to track people down to, you know, as, as I said, with, with his collaborators, uh, you know, it was often a thing of like finding one person who would lead me to somebody else who would lead me to somebody else. Um, his brother was really, really helpful in, in, in sort of anchoring me to, to, you know, giving me the information to, to start from. And, and then I remember there was one conversation that I had where he just mentioned a friend of, of house called Bill Box, who he lived with in the, the 1950s. And then I, I remember going on, on Google and looking through every conceivable uh, result I could have for, for somebody called Bill Box and mostly finding, uh, you know, ads for, for, you know, boxes that people were storing their dollar bills in. And, uh, you know, so once I weeded through that and found like one person, uh, it, I, I, I managed to, to get there. And, and then he in turn led me to a bunch of other people. Uh, but yeah, house brother Jack and, uh, was, was somebody who I contacted early on 
And, you know, I, I ended up going to visit in, in Fresno and he, I, I stayed with him and his wife and they showed me their, you know, letters and like how, Hal's father's diary from when he was uh, like a missionary in, in South Africa, like some really incredible stuff. They really were so generous. And again, like I, I talked before about, about naivety, just the fact that I didn't really know uh, any better than to just dive into, to all this stuff and start with essentially a blank canvas. It, I just did it and would spend hours going through old Mormon newspapers and trying to find out, as much as I could about his his family history and and all this kind of thing, and it was it was just a lot of fun. It seems like you could have just written this biography from the point of view of the exes because he had so many exes in his life. How were they to speak to? Did any of them offer resistance to talking about him? It was challenging uh, that that aspect. He had five ex wives, and I got to know one of them quite well, Malloy. Uh, who was his third wife? Um, but yeah, I mean his 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 first wife. I kind of had a, a decent amount of information from because Ashby's daughter, who was his daughter uh, and whose whose mother was Ashby's first wife, uh, you know, I had a lot a lot of information about her because I, I'm I'm good friends with Ashby's daughter, which that happened uh, in in the process of researching the book, but. Yeah, he burned a lot of bridges uh, over the course of his life, and and you know, for for example, for his his fourth wife Shirley, uh, I I wrote her a letter. What is this like, fourteen, fifteen years ago in LA um, when I was where she lived? I was living at the time briefly, and uh, she sort of politely declined to uh, to to speak to me. But you know, I had you know a ton of letters from her, from Ashby, I think some legal documents as well. <laughs> there was a lot there that I could draw upon. I was very fortunate that, uh, you know, Ashby was somebody who kept a lot of stuff, you know, letters from his mother, uh, from, you know, from him to his mother. Just he, he kept notes, memos, scripts, so much stuff, which is all in the Academy Library in, in Los Angeles where I spent months and months and months going through every box that they had. So there was this uh, amazing archive of, of stuff, which allowed me to have this sort of front row seat uh, to what had happened. And uh, that was a, a really, uh, you know, having sort of done a lot of, of background stuff to sort of learn about his, his childhood and, and a lot of the, the sort of basic information about his life that really brought everything to life. And, and you know, having his voice in the, in the narrative was really, really huge. And not only did you write this fantastic biography, but you also found true love while you were doing it. That is accurate. Yeah, my wife was working uh, at the Academy Library in L.A. where I was doing a lot of my research. And, uh, yeah, we we took our lunch breaks at the same time and, and became friendly. And, you know, we've now been married for uh, 11 years and have a kid. And, you know, it's it's a strange and wonderful thing that, that writing a book about how Ashby completely uh transformed the sort of course of my life not just professionally but also personally and uh, i'm very grateful to him for that so when do you start to hear rumblings about a documentary being made about ashby i think i heard from amy 
Scott, Amy Cargill as she was at the time, because of course we all get married because of Hal Ashby uh, over the course of our lives. Um, yeah, I think it was like late 2012 that, that she shot me an email and she said, I've read your book and I want to make a, a film about Hal Ashby. You know, like I, I, I think, I think, you know, I think essentially the, the book provided something of a blueprint for her from what, for what she might do. You know, it wasn't the first time that, that somebody had had uh, wanted to to talk to me about about making a film, so I you know I had a, a healthy degree of skepticism just based on on the fact that it's tough to make any film always, but you know it's been really uh, amazing to see uh, you know how hard Amy has worked on this and and the success that she's had with the film, just from really you know talking to everybody and and you know as as. Ashley, I'm sure, would be very proud, like really working hard on on the cut to make it into such a special film. Was it always a given that you would be a part of it? I think that over the years, it was something where, um, you know, I, I helped out a lot with the film and was kind of consulting on it. And, you know, they, they, the film used a lot of the, the work that I did as, as a sort of backbone. And, and so... They'd said from from the the start, like we're we're gonna make sure that that your contributions are are appropriately <laughs> recognized when, when we uh, when we finish the film. And so, um, yeah, I always wanted to be involved and to you know I think when the film came out, uh, sorry, sorry, when my book came out rather um, in two thousand nine, I, I I was hoping that it would be sort of part of a bigger effort to. Um, to recognize Ashby as a, as an important filmmaker, you know, there, there've been books about Ashby and, and a book about how to mod as well. And I've, I've been like active participant that's in helping the people who wrote that book sort of get, you know, I've, I've like turned over my notes for anybody who's, who's wanted to, to have them to, because I, you know, in the course of writing a book, you, you gather a lot of information. Some of that just doesn't uh, make it into uh into the final version of the book, you know, I, the, the initial draft of, of, you know, you said how long the book is. The initial draft was like horrendously long. It was, you know, like one and a half times as long. And I, and I just like savagely cut it until it was hopefully mostly just, uh, mostly just the essentials. But, uh, you know, I, it, it's, it's been really cool to see something of a shift in terms of, of people's perceptions of, of Ashby over the years. And that's, you know, it's my, my book and, and other people's books and, and the fact that, you know, his films have, have been coming out on DVD and Blu-ray and Criterion have put out a handful of, of his, his films in the past decade as well. So it's, it's an ongoing process. And so, yeah, I was definitely down from, from the beginning to help Amy with whatever she needed as part of the cause. When you're even on the Harold and Maud uh, disc, correct? Yeah, I am. And that was, that was a lot of fun. And I, I actually did a, so Ch- Chuck Mulvihill, who produced the film, uh, he's, he's the other voice on the, on the commentary on, on the Harold and Maud criterion disc. And he and I did a, a, a sort of scene by scene breakdown of, of the film over like four hours at the Virginia film festival late last year. And we did it in person when we did the, the commentary, it was just like him in a room in, I don't know, somewhere in Arizona where he lives and, and, and me separately somewhere else. So the, and they, the two tracks were just cut together, but we actually got to do this as one big happy family, uh, in, in Charlottesville in, in Virginia. 
in in November last year, and so that was that was really fun because he's uh, he's an amazing character and 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 such a uh, a good guy and somebody you know who you know Ashby was to him in a way a, a similar figure uh, than Jewison was was to Ashby. He was somebody who who he he championed and who he you know, gave, gave opportunities to and, and befriended and, and, and helped him sort of rise through the ranks. And, and Chuck was another of those people who I would talk to frequently and, and who was there uh, as a resource for me to, uh, to check in with when I wanted to know something. I'd be like, well, you know, what about this? Like, what, what? I'm, I'm missing some information. Like, can you, and, you know, he would, Chuck was always really, really helpful. So that was a, that was a fun thing. And what are you working on these days? Oh God, that's a horrible question, Mike. Why would you ask me that? Um, you know, I was talking about being naive and young and, and lacking in responsibility. Now I have a wife and a kid and, and a full time job. And you know, I've edited a book of Ashby interviews. I've done a uh, edited a book of, of Dennis Hopper's interviews. I've been working on on and off on a Hopper project that is really challenging. It, just because I don't have that much time and and um, and I'm trying to write about. I should rephrase that. I've been trying to research. The writing part is 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 endlessly down the road, but uh, it, it's a part of his life that hasn't really been written about so much. Uh, there's this sort of in Harper's life. There's these sort of wilderness periods, um, and I, I was wanting to write about. I am still wanting to write about about the period from sort of the last movie through to Blue Velvet when. You know, he was involved in small ways in a lot of really significant films, but he was also like mostly living in Taos or in Europe and struggling with issues around uh, substances and and their their intake in rather large quantities. And it's a period that I think he consciously didn't talk about a lot, and and the people around him were somewhat protective of. And so I kind of need to get the blessing of of his family members uh, to do that. And I haven't received it yet, but um, we'll see. I'm also very, very obsessed with this movie that, that Hopper made called Catch Fire, which is also known as Backtrack, which is, it's an Alan Smithy movie. Oh, he did a lot of great stuff. He did a lot of great stuff, but it's an, it's, it's a really spectacularly strange and kind of wonderful film. Backtrack and Catch Fire are two different versions of the film. I also have, through fortuitous uh, circumstances, a copy of a third cut of that film, which is not out there at all, which is even longer. Uh, there's like three different lengths. I may end up, end up writing something which is sort of looking at that period of his life through the prism of that film, as, as there's, a, there's a lot of really resonant uh, aspects. And it's a very personal film, even though it's, it's a sort of failed, flawed uh, folly of a movie. So we'll see. That's a really terrible answer to your question because it, basically the answer is I'm too busy and there's all these things I want to do that I, that I, I haven't quite had the time to do. But, you know, I'm still plugging away. Tell me about you. How did you get into filmmaking? I studied uh, documentary film. To be honest, the first film that really got me into documentaries was a film called The Salesman by Al- the Maisel Brothers. And I had never seen anything like that before. I didn't know you could sort of make a film about nothing, but at the same time about everything. And he follows these three Bible salesmen around. And uh, and the hero of it is, is, is well, he's an anti-hero. He doesn't, he, he's really horrible salesman. I just thought it was a fascinating way to make films. So I got really into documentaries and 
I uh, went to uh, Chicago and did a lot of film work there and uh, was thinking I was going to be a DP and I broke my arm right when I started this job at University of Chicago and they were like, well, you can edit then while your arm heals. I learned to edit with one arm and, and I loved it. And I, I just completely fell in love with the craft. Just, I guess, kind of went from there and got, got really, really into the into documentaries and, and the interview form. And then I did a lot of work for Studs Terkel and and uh, that kind of thing. So here I am. <laughs> a long time. That was a long time ago. What was your first Hal Ashby film that you remember seeing? Harold and Maude. I mean, I, I think so many people of my generation would say that because by the time it circled around to me in college, it was cult, cult, cult level status. It was that like the secret mixtape that gets passed along to you from your friends or whatever. You know, the the, the worn copy of Catcher in the Rye it was the same kind of a, a thing. So yeah, I watched that and struck with the same sort of feelings I had when I watched The Salesman, to be honest. It was like both Maude and Harold were, were both anti-heroes. So yeah, I think I must have had a theme going. It spoke to me, that film, you know, I mean, it's it's almost like it's so, so trite because I think that's what everybody says. But that was definitely my entry point. And then and then being there, well, probably, I mean, that film blew my mind, too. I remember watching, like, Nashville and being there on the same day and was like, oh, my God, <laughs> this era of filmmaking is nuts. What the hell? Well, how did uh, Hell become the first film that you would go to direct from editing? I wanted to direct other films prior to this one. I tried to. I, you know, I, I, I made a, a bunch of short films and I did directed music videos. To be honest, I wasn't probably like fully formed yet as like a creative person. I think I was busy editing other people's movies for a long time and had aspirations, inspirations, whatever, of, of doing this, but was probably a little freaked out by the amount of work that I, I saw. And, and I, you know, when you're an editor, like you sit with directors, you know, and you're like their therapist. So I felt I would see these people coming to me the shell of a, of a human by the time we're in the third, fourth stages of editing. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, I got over that part of it. And I think because Hal was such a compelling subject for me, I was, I just couldn't believe there wasn't already a film about him. It seemed like an injustice. And I sort of really felt like it was, it was time that I did something a little bigger. And now I know how hard it will be. I'm not saying it will be easy for me, but at least I've cleared the hurdle of, can I do this? Can I finish a feature? Okay, I can. Great. That part is at least gone. (laughs) Well, when is that moment for you? When do you say, I really want to know more about Hal Ashby to the point of, I want to make a film about this guy? I think it was the minute I finished the last page in Nick's book, to be honest. It was like, huh, okay. That was a pretty fascinating read. What now? I want to know more. I wanted to. I wanted to see it actually, and I didn't know Nick at all. I wrote him like a fan girl and was like, "Can I ask you some questions about Ashby and how did you go about it?" And then he called me, and I was really nervous, like, "Oh no, I don't know what I'm doing." But I want to make this film, and you know, he sort of gave me some advice, and it took a while. But you know, I think it was me talking to Hal's estate having really early conversations with them and everyone kept thinking that the project would 
not take off or it would you know go away and <laughs> he wouldn't have to deal with me again but at a certain point there was no way I wasn't going to make it Nick talked about how when he was doing his book that the family really opened up to him that people would kind of say like you're the only guy who's writing about how we need you to do this you know continue on why was there a doubt that your film might not actually come to be? Was it that you were a younger filmmaker or just that had other people tried to Precisely. do this before? Precisely. I mean, Nick was like the a film editor of a major film magazine when he wrote that book. So he had a definite, I mean, he was an established writer. I was an editor that had no kind of, I just came to them with a good idea and a lot of passion. So they had to really take a gamble on me, you know, like who, and I, and I was like eight months pregnant too. I remember that I was really, really pregnant trying to pitch this idea. I must've looked like a crazy person. They had to vet me out as they should, you know, it's a lot of responsibility to take someone's life and, and make a, a movie out of it. And I know that they were approached before. So, um, and especially, the family. So we just dealt with his estate, and then I, and then we contacted Lee, his daughter. So that's really where I felt like that's where I had to earn the trust. It wasn't so much with the estate; it was more with Lee because her story is so tragic, and it really did necessitate a lot of trust on her part to be vulnerable with us and to trust that we weren't going to exploit her story. I feel good about that. I wish that we could have included more of every single person's stories and interviews in the movie, but hers especially um, was, was precious to me. Did you end up editing your own film? I did edit for like two, three years because I could. And I, and that was always the plan was I would keep cutting as we shot more footage. I'd cut it into the film and we'd have this working edit and we'd know what we wanted to go back and how we'd construct your own stuff. So I did, I, I did fulfill that, but you get a place. I mean, it's really hard for directors to cut their movies and maintain sanity and keep a good family balance and all that. So um, there was a wall. I, I did eventually hit a point where I had to hand it off. Um, and I handed it off to a really talented uh, editor by the name of Sean Jarrett. And he cut a movie. Um, he's cut a lot of films, but he cut a movie that I'd seen called Holy Hell. That uh, was a cult. I mean, we got cult that <laughs> played at Sundance a couple of years ago. And I thought he was really talented and had a good eye. So he fortunately was lived nearby and was available. And um, he took it home, you know, a lot. He had it for like six weeks. And then we got the film back. And, we, you know, we were working on it again, my partner, Brian, and I, or my, my producing partner, Brian Morrow. So it was a family effort to get that thing cut. But I, but I did sort of live with it for years to kind of get the structure in place. Well, how did it feel to be on the other side of the table and finally watching something that ultimately you did not edit 100%. How was that seeing, you know, some of your, your darling, some of those shots that you probably thought for <laughs> sure you wanted in there end up yeah. not being in there? Kind of strange, but I mean, I think it's a normal, if you want to make a successful film, I don't mean commercially successful, but like if you want to make a good movie, you know, you've got to remove yourself from it at some point and take your ego out of it. I mean, my, all my decisions at some point or another were ultimately guided by some subjective reason where like I remembered how hard it was to get that line out of that person or that shot. So I was starting to feel like I possibly have lost perspective. So I'm glad that I at least had the wherewithal to know that it was a little freaky to be honest, but it was also really, really exciting and satisfying to see what someone else did with my work, you know, and, and how, how they could take certain 
things where I was having problems with it and they could see what I was trying to do and could, could do it, could actually execute it. So I, I, you know, I don't know if I'd gotten a different editor. I don't know how I might've gone a different way. It was pretty, on the whole, it was really exciting. You said you were eight months pregnant when you were out there pitching this. And I'm curious how old your child is today. Um, she's five, so that's the length of the project. I'm sorry, she, she'll be five in, in October. That's It's about, about five years. And I had another child in the process, so I've had two two kids. Ashby was the first child, because <laughs> I went on to have two other children in the process. That is freaking crazy. I know how difficult it is to have a, a newborn around, much less more than one. That's, wow. How did you manage? It was crazy. It was nuts. Well, it was it was like a matter of... Edit because of my editing room. It was <laughs> first. It was it was the best room in the house that used to be my my edit bay it was huge and amazing. And then the baby came, and so then I then I moved. You know, then the baby got the nursery, and so I was always shuffling my edit bay around to like where the kids' rooms would be, and my room's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And uh, finally, I just was like, we'll, we'll just have it in this room that's like this tiny little room, which is essentially where the dogs come in and out of the house. I'll put the computer in there, and it's right next to my bed, and I'll just edit at night when the kids go to bed. And it, that's what I did <laughs> like for these periods of time. And then, and then I could kind of just get them in preschool, and then I'd have some days free. But yeah, my, my husband worked a lot and, and constantly lived with this film and helped me. He works in film too, so it was a whole family affair. There are so many fantastic interviews in the film, and I'm curious, who was the toughest person for you to finally connect with? Well, look, we never connected with Bud Court, and I would and I wish that Bud Court and Warren Beatty I, I wanted so badly, and for whatever reasons, scheduling and whatever reasons, we couldn't get him, so that was heartbreaking. But uh, outside of those two, we chased Robert Town for like three years. We, we like, what? come on, Robert Town. And Cat Stevens, even the day of the interview, I wasn't sure if it was going to happen because he's, you know, he's very, very careful. He's very media savvy and he doesn't, you know, he, he wasn't even traveling to the United States for a long time. We kept thinking we'd have to go to Dubai or something or London and find him. But thankfully he... Somebody knew the guitarist in his band and they were on tour and it just happened to work out. Well, it paid off. I mean, gosh, the, the music for Harold and Maude is almost a character unto itself. It is such a crucial part of that movie. It is. Yeah, I, I, I think of it that way, too. Yeah, it's like a little certain character. I have to ask a dumb question. What is your favorite Hal Ashby film? That's not a dumb question. I don't have a favorite because I've looked at these films for so long now and I've looked at them for different reasons at different times in my life. So they all mean something different. But what what I would say, I, I feel like the most important films that maybe people might want to go watch right now would be Being There and The Landlord, because I think that they address themes that are very relevant to, you know, living in 2018. Once the film is done, what's the history after that? You played Sundance this year, correct? We did. We, we premiered it in competition at Sundance. That was like winning the lottery. You couldn't believe it. It was incredible, and then that really put the film on the map. We'd played a whole bunch of festivals. We we played Telluride last weekend. Um, we did AFI Docs. We did so many great festivals, and now tomorrow we're opening. The film is having its theatrical premiere uh, in New York at the IFC Center, and so I'll do a Q&A with Lee Grant. And then they programmed a week of Ashby films, all of his films of the 70s. And then it will go on to, to premiere in L.A. the following week and then all kinds of cities all over 
all over the U.S. after that. So Oscilloscope has been a really, uh, they're a distributor and they've done a, a fantastic job uh, getting it programmed and trying to get it in front of every, you know, film lover that we possibly can. How's it been for you watching this movie with an audience now? To be honest, I, I've seen it so many times, I usually duck out <laughs> during the screening and come back in. But when I come back in uh, and get the audience reaction, the, the coolest thing is that everybody seems to really be engaged but what everybody wants to go and do. And the coolest thing is that these are young people that come up to me afterwards and they say, I didn't know who he was at all. I've never even heard of this guy. And now I want to go back and watch all of his films. Like the fact that that kept happening at every festival and every city I went to consistently just made me feel like so touched and so just relieved actually that we did our job. I mean, it was the whole, the whole point of the whole thing, the whole mission of all of this was to make how and make his films, you know, more accessible for a new generation of, of film lovers. So if we succeed in that, then we won. So while you're making this movie, you're also raising kids. Are you also doing your day job on top of that too? I did editing, um, you know, but it was hard. So I really relied on my husband a lot. I, I did, I cut, I did a rough cut of a film that's really awesome. And they're finishing it right now. It's a documentary about uh, there was a record store in New York called Other Music. And the filmmakers had previously made a documentary about um, the artist, uh, the singer, Syl Johnson. So they were incredible. And, and I kind of started cutting that. Actually, when I handed my film off to Sean, I started cutting their movie because I was like, probably had issues of like, I'm not doing anything and I need to be cutting. I'll, I'll cut this person's movie. Uh, that was interesting. And I do a lot of producing for a company called Masterclass. So we do really fun, cool videos with different uh, masters of their, of their craft. I know you probably can't go into a whole lot of stuff, but is there anything that you're already are eyeing as far as this is some of the things that we managed to lose during the editing process that we want to put back in when it comes to the Blu-ray release? Well, yeah, there's a lot more that Robert Town had to say about the films he was involved in. There's a lot more well, that everyone, to be honest. Uh, Pablo Ferro had really cool, he, he did a very cool technical breakdown of how he physically did the split screen technique of the Thomas Crown affair, which was fascinating to me. Um, Haskell Wexler talked a lot more about uh, the various, about his, you know, participating in the different films. Diane Schroeder, which unfortunately got kind of lumped into the girlfriend section of the film, but Diane was so much more than that. She was Hal's creative partner for a very long time and did she was sort of a research assistant, the onset photographer. I mean, she did everything from, from Bound for Glory, coming home, being there, like all in, through the 80s, too. So Diane had a lot of wonderful stories. And Lee. And Lee's story is, um, is uh, we go into more depth with Lee, too. So there's a lot, there's a lot, to, a lot of stuff. Well, I am a huge fan of 70s cinema, uh, especially, and... To get all these stories documented, I think is so invaluable. And the movie that you ended up making is so wonderful, and I just can't wait to see more of it. I, I think I'm kind of in the camp as far as you are, is that more is better when it comes to this. And just give me everything. Let me drink from the fire hose. <laughs> Definitely. Well, yeah, hopefully we can. Hopefully I can just – I mean, there's so much more left. And I always felt like that. Like, 
you know, especially if Haskell is no longer with us, you know, Norman, like a lot of these guys, this is, it's really important to record their stories. It's, it's, it's an era of filmmaking that once these guys are gone, you know, they're gone. And so we, I, I personally wanted as much as I could get of all of that. So I'm glad that you, you feel the same way. Well, Amy, thank you so much for your time today. I'll let you get back to the road and charging up your phone. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure. To sing out, sing out And if you want to be free, be free Cause there's a million things to be You know that there are And if you want to live high, live high And if you want to live low, live low Cause there's a million ways to go You know that there are you want the opportunities are and if you find a new way you can do it today you can make it all true and you can make it undo you see ah it's easy ah you only need to know Well, if you want to say yes, say yes And if you want to say no, say no Cause there's a million ways to go You know that there are And if you want to be me, be me And if you want to be you, be you Cause there's a million things to do You know that there are you want the opportunities on and if you find a new way you can do it today you can make it all true and you can make it undo you see ah it's easy ah you only Well, if you want to sing out, sing out And if you want to be free, be free Cause there's a million things to be You know that there are, you know that there are You know that there are, you know that there are You know that there are If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.